to A Great Big City News, episode 58. Special edition, the coronavirus hits the city. Hi, I'm Trace Gilton, founder of A Great Big City. This podcast will start off a little different than any other episode has, because a lot of things are different these days. Since the virus has hit the city and various measures have been put in place and the impacts have been felt across the city, it seems like week to week that things have changed so much. I follow the development of the coronavirus when it was first becoming an outbreak in China. And on January 26th, the first version of the coronavirus information page was published at agreatbigcity.com health. And although there were no cases in the city at the time, The page did contain the disclaimer that there were likely to be a number of cases within the city due to the number of residents that travel to the city from across the world and the inevitability that one case in such a densely populated area would cause a smaller outbreak. And now, nearly two months later, the city is in a completely different place, with the number of confirmed cases reaching into the thousands. You're likely well aware of all the different ways that life has changed. The steadily incrementing measures to close down bars and restaurants, to keep grocery stores open, to put the six-foot distance between you and everyone else in the city. And if you're looking for those kind of updates, you can follow A Great Big City on Twitter. But those daily changes really always focus back in on the same measures of washing hands, keeping your distance, and just taking measures to mechanically separate yourself from other people, which is not something the city has ever been good at. New Yorkers know what other people don't about the city, that it's built on looking out for each other, and New Yorkers will band together to help someone else out. It's just a bit of a dilemma that right now, the way we all need to help each other is by staying apart, at least physically. Spotlight's really been put on New York as of late. The state has the most cases in the nation, and the city has the majority of those cases. But it's due to a massive and hard-fought expansion of the number of tests that can be administered within the state. As of March 22nd, the state has performed 61,000 tests. And even that's within the limited guidelines of people who meet the criteria and are in the worst condition. Other states have performed fractions of these numbers of tests and are in for a sad awakening when they do start testing. And when people with the most severe complications of the disease begin showing up in the hospitals of states like Oklahoma, which has a population of nearly 4 million people and as of March 22nd has conducted 838 tests, less people than have been tested in Rhode Island. This outbreak will be a dark memory for everyone in the country. But with the spotlight on New York, hopefully the rest of the country will also take notice and start modifying their practices. Governor Cuomo's daily press conferences have become national television events, with people across the country praising his response while he simultaneously projects a calm demeanor, but with a strong dedication to making the changes that need to be made to attack this disease. I don't know what comes next. Mayor de Blasio has started alluding to what's been in the back of people's minds. That the worst is probably yet to come. With no one having immunity, the disease will continue to spread. 
With our social distancing only keeping it at bay until a vaccine is developed, a treatment is discovered to lessen the most extreme medical complications, or our sustained physical distance from one another is maintained long enough that people who may not even know they're transmitting the disease wouldn't have had interaction with anyone else who may be susceptible. The economic impact of a sustained shutdown of the city is almost too much to imagine. I don't know what the city looks like on the other side of surviving that kind of shutdown. New York is built on millions and millions of smaller pieces, millions of people that are dedicated to making New York what it is, and they're all going to be trying their best to get us through it. New York is New York only because of New Yorkers. Without everyone's dedication, it's just an empty shopping mall or a cardboard cutout in the background of a late-night talk show. Thanks for listening to a few of my thoughts on a completely unprecedented event. Coming up next is This Week in New York History. But sadly, this week also marks some other terrible events that I have intentionally left out this week. The factory fire at the Monarch Underwear Company in 1958. The Happy Land nightclub fire in 1990. The Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire in 1911. The crash of U.S. Air Flight 405 in 1992. And the racist killing of Timothy Kaufman in 2017. I'll be skipping those this week, but if you'd like to learn about any of those events, check out the podcast episode from last year, episodes 14 and 15. Now more than ever, thanks for being part of a great big city. Fifty-three years ago on March 26, 1967, thousands of people gathered at Central Park Sheep Meadow on Easter Sunday for one of the first hippie B-ins of the 1960s. As many as 10,000 people gathered for the festival-like celebration, including hippies, families, and neighborhood residents wandering in to investigate the event. Film footage from the day shows a peaceful, playful atmosphere, with many types of people lounging on the sheep meadow, carrying balloons, and watching several performers. Looking more like a circus performance than a protest, the B-in was focused on fun and had no political overtones. From a 1967 Village Voice article on the event, quote, The costumes ranged from Easter parade hats and morning suits to high mod gear to psychedelic robes. Many people painted their faces in wild designs and colors ranging from chalk white to glowing lavender. They also included a dot, a tiny mirror, or a diffraction disc pasted to the forehead. One man was dressed in a suit of long, shaggy strips of paper. Another person wore a jacket covered with buttons all upside down. Quote, this isn't a day for slogans, he explained. As the day came to a close, the small group of police watching over the event moved in to break up the last revelers gathered on a hill, but the tense showdown resulted in police backing down to observe them from a distance, and the attendees dispersed shortly after sunset. Five years ago, on March 26, 2015, 
A gas explosion and fire destroys three buildings at 2nd Avenue in St. Mark's. The disaster killed two people, injured 19, and displaced the residents of 144 apartments in neighboring buildings. The cause was determined to have been an illegal tap into a natural gas line that was serving the apartments above the ground floor Sushi Park restaurant. Investigators theorized that the gas pipe had been illegally bypassed and then removed while Con Ed inspected the pipes during an installation almost a year later. Then, the bypass was likely reinstalled and created a leak that ignited, destroying three buildings, setting a seven-alarm fire, and causing the evacuation of 11 surrounding buildings. Five arrests were made in connection with the explosion. The building owners, a plumber, and a contractor on charges ranging from manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide and illegally modifying the gas lines. Of the five people charged, the owner's son died at age 31 while awaiting sentencing. The plumber received probation and community service for his role in the gas pipe modification, and two others were found guilty in state supreme court of manslaughter and other charges. Fifty-seven years ago, on March 28, 1963, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds premieres in New York at the Palace Theater on Broadway. Based on the novel of the same name, Hitchcock's film became an instant hit and was noted for its innovative special effects and sparse soundtrack. The New York premiere involved the release of 1,000 homing pigeons, but even that event couldn't hold a candle to the London premiere on August 29, 1963 which featured two flamingos, 50 red cardinals and starlings, and six penguins. And it even had loudspeakers hidden in the trees to play screeching bird calls as the audience exited the film. Thirty-five years ago, on March 31, 1985, the first WrestleMania is held at Madison Square Garden, featuring Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. The success of the event would propel wrestling into popular culture and boosted the WWF over any previous wrestling leagues. WrestleManias would routinely take place near the city, but would return to Madison Square Garden for the 10th and 20th anniversary shows, although the 30th anniversary took place in New Orleans. Currently, WrestleMania 36 is scheduled to be held on April 4th and 5th, 2020, but due to coronavirus concerns, it won't be performed in front of a live audience. The event will be available pay-per-view and will take place in various locations like the WWE Performance Center in Orlando, Florida, and will only be attended by the staff necessary to run the event. Ninety-two years ago, on March 21, 1928, Charles Lindbergh receives the Medal of Honor in recognition of his solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Lindbergh's record-setting flight began on May 20, 1927, when he took off in the Spirit of St. Louis from Roosevelt Airport near Mineola, Long Island, and landed 33 and a half hours and 3,600 miles later in Le Bourget Airport in Paris. The cross-Atlantic flight set Lindbergh's name forever in history and earned him the $25,000 Orteg Prize from Raymond Orteg, owner of the Lafayette Hotel and Brevard Hotel in Manhattan. When Lindbergh returned to New York on June 13, 1927, he was celebrated in a ticker tape parade from Lower Manhattan through Central Park, and by March 21, 1928, 
Congress and President Coolidge presented the pilot with the Medal of Honor. As reward for the successful flight, Lindbergh received the Orteg Prize at the Brevert Hotel on June 17, 1927. As an honorary prize, he received the first Master of Aeronautics degree from NYU. Roosevelt Field on Long Island closed in 1951, and now the site is used as retail shopping. But the nearby Cradle of Aviation Museum preserves the history of the site, including Charles Lindbergh's first plane and flight gear. And also in celebration of Charles Lindbergh, the Lindbergh Meat Market in Bay Ridge claims to have opened the same day in 1927 when Charles Lindbergh was paraded down Fort Hamilton Parkway. One hundred and sixty-three years ago, on March twenty-third, eighteen fifty-seven, the modern era of skyscrapers begins with the installation of the first passenger elevator. The E.V. Howitt Building at the corner of Broadway and Broome was newly built and designed as a department store before that model of store even existed. While the exterior was composed of elaborate cast-iron facades, there was a revolution being constructed inside. Mr. Howitt was preparing to open a grand showroom of glass and porcelain products, but he knew that installing a brand new invention would attract patrons into the store. Therefore, despite no practical need of an elevator, Mr. Howitt installed a lift designed by Elisha Otis, which became the first passenger elevator installed in a commercial building. Few details survive about that first elevator, and the newer elevator installed in 1892 is sometimes confused with the first but was a completely new design installed by elevator manufacturer Alonzo B.C. The original Otis was powered by a steam engine and based on the new safety elevator technology that Elisha Otis had demonstrated at the Crystal Palace only three years earlier. Today's elevators use a relatively similar mechanical safety mechanism to prevent the car from dropping if the lifting cables are severed. No information seems to exist on when the first elevator was removed or if any of the parts survived the removal process. And 104 years ago, on March 27, 1916, 946 Garfield Avenue in Jersey City goes missing. A Manhattan real estate agent showed up at the location to show the two-story home to a potential buyer but found only the foundation remaining at the location. According to later detective work, the house had been moved away piece by piece by unknown persons over the course of a few weeks. Since the real estate agent was the one to discover the missing structure, it's possible that the owner had moved it without informing him, but that would seem just as strange an occurrence as the thieves absconding with the house piece by piece. Searching through newspaper archives, there didn't seem to be any follow-up on what had happened to the house or if it was relocated. In the 104 years since, the entire neighborhood has disappeared, much like 946 Garfield Avenue. The block is now empty and has become a new housing development. Click on the full story in the show notes to read the original newspaper clipping, where the real estate agent explains to the police, whose police station was just around the corner, that he had no idea where the house had gone. Park of the Day Australia Diggs Park on 3rd Avenue in the Bronx Formerly known as Rocks and Roots Park, the park is now named after Australia Diggs, the first African-American woman to represent the Bronx in the New York State Assembly. 
In parks events, nearly every event has been canceled due to coronavirus concerns. So if you do visit a park in the near future, just remember to stay about six feet away from every other person. Parks remain a great place to regain some sanity. But the rules about keeping your hands washed, not touching surfaces and then touching your face, and keeping a reasonable distance from those around you all still apply. Here's something you may not have known about New York. If the New York City population was spread out at the same density as Wyoming, the size of the city would cover nearly half the lower 48 states. Extreme highs and lows for this week in weather history both occurred on March 21st. In 1921, it was a record high of 84 degrees, and in 1885, a record low of 10 degrees. Weather for the week ahead? Rain begins on Monday as temperatures fall down into the 40s and 50s. Currently every day, Monday through Sunday, is forecast to have some amount of rain and to be partly cloudy at other times. Thanks for listening to A Great Big City. Follow along 24 hours a day on social media at A Great Big City or email contact at agreatbigcity.com with any news, feedback, or topic suggestions. Subscribe to A Great Big City News wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Player FM, or listen to each episode on the podcast pages at agreatbigcity.com slash podcast. Our intro and outro music is Start the Day by Lee Rosphere. Thanks for being part of A Great Big City. <laughs>